0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to Red Inca, which is part of the 99.94 network. This podcast has adverts, but if you prefer your podcast without, in the show notes you'll see the link to my Patreon page and you can listen to our chats uninterrupted. Patreon also comes with many other benefits as well, including a Discord channel and private chats with me. But now, the show. This episode of Red Inca, I'm talking about Andrew Simons. He was in so many ways a man ahead of his time. And so in this episode, I try and explain what that meant. So I have an Andrew Simon story. In 2003, my cousin Joel and I backpacked around the World Cup. One day, we were early enough at one of the games, and we saw the Australians in the Nets at Centurion. I think it was Darren Lehman, Ricky Ponting, and Andrew Simons. And so we headed over to watch. In front of the nets, there were a bunch of kids who were fielding balls that were hit out. Darren Lehman doesn't hit the ball straight that much, Ricky Ponting hit a few, but Simons, or Roy, as obviously most people call him, he hit a lot. It wasn't really an entirely professionally run net session, as it wasn't particularly safe. There were no ropes or fences to stop people from standing behind. Fans could just wander over and watch. And that's how all these kids got in. And so we headed over and we went about 30 meters behind them. On occasion, the ball would get through their small fingers and we'd field it, toss it back to them and they'd toss it back to the bowlers or the coaches. Then Roy started having throwdowns. Every 10 seconds or so, a ball would be belted at a kid. And they started stopping like one and two at best. And Roy just hit the ball so much harder than the other players. You could hear the sound from 60 meters or so back where we were. Lehman kissed the ball. Ponting punched it and Roy annihilated it. You were listening to a different sound from the bat, a Lance Kluzner-like noise. So we would stop them and throw them back. And even a couple got through us. If they weren't hit almost directly at us, we had very little chance of stopping them. This was a power that we had seen on TV, but to watch it coming straight for you was just incredibly intense. I remember having a discussion about how unsafe this was for the kids that were there. Eventually, I saw an opening to get a souvenir and the next time a ball was hit through the kids, I let it go on purpose and then I trotted off to collect it, put it straight in my pocket and headed back to my seat. Behind me was the noise of a bunch of kids complaining that I had stolen a ball. I don't really know why I took it, but I just wanted to keep a piece of what I had just seen because Andrew Simons was different to other players. And Australia had won two World Cups by that stage, and they had done it on the back of having the best cricketers and playing the sport like it was a bit of a formula. Dean Jones, Michael Bevan, Ricky Ponting were entirely in charge of what they were doing. Simon's wasn't. It often looked like he was fighting his instincts, which was to smash every single ball out of the ground. And there is a story from his academy days that says basically that. When he was asked what he was thinking when facing spin, he admitted that in his mind, he was thinking that he could hit all of these balls for six. So he was a player out of time. I mean, Michael Bevan was the king of Australian ODI cricket when Simons was trying to break in. Bevan was a human calculator and Simons was more grievous bodily harm on bowlers and even at times on spectators that dared to streak near him. Only Adam Gilchrist really played with that same endless power and lack of fear. And Simons actually went on to average more than him. But Simons was also just a different kind of athlete. Not all cricketers were even athletes at that stage. He was fast and powerful, and he didn't really look like a cricketer physically. He looked like he got lost on the way to, I don't know, rugby training. He also wasn't white. And in that period, he really stood out in what was nearly an all-white sport in Australia. Even Jason Gillespie's indigenous background wasn't really mentioned much at that point. And so Andrew Simons' skin color stood out. Interestingly enough, he wasn't the first black Australian cricketer. That was Sam Morris, who played one test for Australia when the rest of the team went on strike during the 1884-85 series. Morris was a medium pacer who could bat a bit, and had been born in Tasmania to West Indian parents who had emigrated during the gold rush. These days, Morris is probably better known as a very good trivia question. But to Australian cricket fans in the 90s, Simons was a trailblazer when it came to race as well. But there are many different interesting parts of Andrew Simons, but I think the most interesting part was always the way he played. Let's start with his fielding. Andrew Simons fielded differently than others. He was a proactive fielder, and because of his otherworldly athletic gifts, he was like an impressive force at cover, a ring-fielding predator. Towards the end of his career, he was mic'd up for a game, and he took people through his methods. And you could suddenly see how his mind, body, and desire all came together to make him one of the world's best ring fielders. And one of the most important things was just how much he wanted the ball. It was his way of keeping himself in the game all the time. And for all the technical and physical gifts that he obviously had, this one was the most important one. Andrew Simons was desperate to be involved. Some players don't want the ball. He needed it. And then there was the physical. He could change directions far quicker than most people of his size. In fact, he was just a very, very quick runner. And he also had an absolute rocket arm. It's also worth talking about how he evolved to become even better. Australia paired Simon's up with Mike Young. They turned an American baseball coach into a cricket fielding specialist, which took Simon's fielding to another level altogether. For years, when he would talk about his fielding, Young's name would always come from his mouth. But there was also just his brain. And this is what you saw in that on-field masterclass I was talking about. He was mentioning bat faces and areas that they want to score and how the bowls were going and just his general intuition of where he thought the ball was going to go. You can be the fastest fielder in the world, but it doesn't help if you're waiting to react to what happens in front of you. Simons was reading the bowler and the batter and proactively swapping runs. And in that way, and I suppose in almost every way, he was always ahead of the game. One of the big technical changes that he made as a batter was not trying to hit everything as hard as he could. The reasoning behind that was because he could hit the ball so much harder than anyone else. A three-quarter swing from him would still clear most of the boundaries in the world. In ODI cricket of his era, the average strike rate was 74 and a 6 was hit every 109 balls. His strike rate was 92.5 and he hit a 6 every 53 balls. Despite retiring before ODI cricket had got a hell of a lot faster, he still has the 11th best strike rate in the game of players with more than 5,000 runs. But the interesting thing is how much Australia tried to rein all that in. We actually know he could have scored so much faster if they ever let him off the leash. Instead, he averaged a very respectable 40 in ODIs. But what kind of player could he have been if Australia just let Roy be Roy? There are only three players with career strike rates over 100 with his amount of runs. Shea Afridi, Freede, Frens Saywag, AB De Beas. That is the level he should have ended up with. But the game was very, very different then. And Australia was quite restricting in the way they did things. The free market wasn't dictating what you did the way that T20 has. And so Simons had to conform to what Australia thought they wanted. And they obviously wanted the higher average. But even then, as they tried to soften his natural aggression so they could get more runs out of him, they couldn't actually make him be a normal cricketer because of the way he thought. And so with his bowler, Simons was two bowlers, depending on how he felt and what the team needed. And now... Roy was not the first all-rounder to bowl pace and spin, but he was perhaps one of the first to do it slightly more tactically. Simon's off-spin was very much like the canny part-time as you get in club cricket. It came from a powerful arm. It wasn't really about spin. It was really about the accuracy and intelligence and usually him bowling in a spot that he thought he would have struggled to hit a boundary from. As for his medium pace, he could wobble the ball around a little bit, and he also sometimes got more out of the deck, especially with the occasional ball that bounced, than others did, just probably because he was so strong. But neither of these were frontline skills on their own, but he made them work when he needed to. He was essentially a match-ups bowler, before we even used the term. And Simons wasn't even a full-time fifth bowler for the Australians in ODIs. He usually split his overs between Darren Lehman or Michael Clarke, depending on who was in the team but he still took 133 wickets at 37. His medium pace or his off spin were both handy, but he made it more than handy because of the fact he could do both. In 2016, when T20 had wholly taken over, quite a few coaches stopped using the phrase all-rounder and they started using something else they'd take it from baseball. They would refer to a player as a two- or three-tool player, bat, bowl, field. Andrew Simons was so far ahead of his time, he was a four-tool player. Bat, field, spin, seam. And we did just see the smallest amount of what he could do in the format of cricket that probably best suited his natural instincts. In 2003, he played five T20 matches for Kent. They were his first five. He scored 170 runs at 75 balls. In fact, over his first 16 T20 games, which was kind of at the back end of the peak of his batting, he made 529 runs from 260 balls while averaging 44. Sadly, though, the IPL and most international T20 came just after his peak, but he did make 100 in the first year of the IPL, and over the first two seasons in the IPL, he averaged 45.5 while striking at over 150. This meant he got a couple more years when he was clearly well past his best, but one included the 2011 campaign where he only struck at 97 over 11 matches. However, he was still playing, partly because of his reputation, but also because he had so many extra useful skills to a team. But as a batter, sadly, he was nowhere near the player he was even two years before, and certainly nowhere near the player he was at his peak. Yet, when you look at his T20 numbers, they're still pretty incredible. He averaged 32 with a strike rate of 147 across his career. But that's a badly drawn picture of what peak Simons could have been. If they had T20 in 98, not 08, I wonder what his numbers would be. It's just sad for him that he was a T20 player before there really was T20 cricket. He showed people how to play it, but then had to watch and commentate on them actually doing the game themselves. And you can see themes when you look at the history of limited overs cricket. For instance, Javed Dad led into Dean Jones, who became Ricky Ponting, and then we had Virat Kohli. Michael Bevan had MS Dhoni following him. Viv Richards' closest copy is A.B. Villiers. For Simons, I would say he's very much a Kyron Pollard type player, a power hitter with an incredible brain, one who broke chases and bowlers early on with a freedom that other batters found probably unnerving, and then continued to bother people with bowling whatever he had to to be effective and incredible fielding efforts. But it is worth noting that Simons wasn't just a white ball wizard. Remember, he played 26 tests in a very solid era of Australian cricket, often keeping Shane Watson out of the team. And in those matches, he averaged 40.5 with the bat, while also adding almost a wicket every game, bowling whatever he wanted to bowl. In a 14-year first-class career, Simons hit 40 hundreds, including two of those in test matches. And I think he was often wrongly looked at as a slogger. And part of the reason was he was kind of like a unicorn, right? There weren't that many other players like him. So even though he actually had a really high average in first-class cricket, in test cricket, and one-day cricket, he was still seen as this wild batter. And he certainly felt that way. He was exciting, unique, and powerful. I mean, Andrew Simons came from the future. And for crowds in the 90s, used to people pushing the ball in the middle overs and one-dimensional bowlers and fielders reacting to the ball, everything he did was thrilling. And I don't even think we always knew how to process what he was doing because we didn't really have someone like him before. And I'm just talking about the cricket. There are so many stories about Andrew Simons. Like when he got drunk and went on the radio to discuss Matt Hayden's wife and many stories from Kent, including the one where he hit the same woman in the crowd twice with boundaries not to mention a far more famous one within private Kent circles about what happened with a sponsor. Then there was a long swing home with Matt Hayden when he had a problem with his boat and he was fishing the friendship and then fallout that happened with Michael Clark, more drinking stories than most mustachioed players of previous eras and the entire monkey gate thing. Like throughout much of his career, Simon's was either a news story or some sort of semi-apocryphal tale that was told from cricket bar to cricket bar sort of whispered in the corner And look, I'm not saying all those things aren't interesting, and there's many great stories that will probably come out over the next coming weeks as well. But for me, the most memorable thing was just what he did when he was on the field, the power and the strength. He just didn't look like other players. And I always had this feeling when watching him bat of almost like pre-sadness. He was so different to anyone else. There was no one else that could really replace him in that batting lineup that once it was over, it was over. And so you always felt that no matter what, no matter how many sixes or fours or whatever had happened, it was going to be over too soon. And the sadness about that, and saying that about a batter and his career, is that is what has happened with his life. Except this is far worse. Everyone's going to have their own memory of Andrew Simons, from those people who've watched a little bit of his commentary, to finding Rob Belinda's videos online, to the people who grew up with him. Everyone's got different stories. But just to go back to that original story that I talked about at the start and watching him in the net, I still remember that. In fact, I remember it almost every day because this is on my desk. This is the ball. Joel went and got him to sign it for me after Australia won that World Cup. RIP, Roy. Thanks for listening to Red Inca on the 99.94 network. For more information about us, go to 9994dm.com and you can also sign up for our beta launch but also support us. If you can't help out on Patreon, every single review, share, or word of mouth suggestion to your friend helps us. However, this podcast is made available by the people who support us at Patreon, so thank you to all of those who do. There is a link to the Patreon in the show notes. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes the best audio anyone can from random Zoom calls. Mukunja Benredi is in charge of our video site. Orijoti Senpathi turns the files into video podcasts and Shibanka Bhattacharya makes our graphics. Our theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Cricket.